today on the Tearsheet Podcast. You know, we don't necessarily think it's an either or question with with DeFi. I think there's an opportunity for both sides to learn and, and kind of uh, build the foundations of, of what finance could look like in the future. I'm Zach Miller, Editor-in-Chief of Tearsheet. The following was produced by Tearsheet Studios. We worked with payments provider Fiserv to create a podcast series about open finance and the work of empowering fintechs, brands, and FIs to collaborate and innovate together. In our sixth conversation in the series, we speak to SVP and head of fintech at Fiserv, Sunil Sachdev, and senior strategic sales manager at Consensus, Daniel Lynch. We discuss the potential for fintech to leverage Web3 technologies to enhance customer experiences and inspire loyalty. Hey, everyone. Great to be here. Thanks for the invite. My name is Daniel Lynch. I work at Consensus. I am a senior strategic sales manager here. I'll tell you a little bit about what that means. Uh, previous to Consensus, I worked at Swift for a number of years, working on their payments innovation initiatives, uh, a little bit before that in supply chain and supply chain finance software. Consensus is the largest uh, blockchain software company in the world. I think we're a bit unique in that we address different verticals within the market simultaneously that others don't. Uh, we work with developers. We work with the retail people, right? We have the most popular wallet in the world. We work with large institutions uh, such as like JP Morgan or Santander, as well as directly with a lot of the popular protocols, layer ones, layer twos, DeFi lending protocols, which I think gives us a bit of a unique perspective, uh, a bit of a 360 view of everything that's happening in the ecosystem. And I personally... Um, work with a lot of the institutional adoption. So helping institutions think through how to participate in the kind of innovation that's happening more on that like protocol side or in the you know uh, developer side around Web3, DeFi, and all these new financial primitives. Great. So welcome. And Sunil, can you introduce yourself? Sure. Hey, Zach. Good to talk to you again. Sunil Satsdev. I head up fintech and growth here at Fiserv. Uh, Fiserv is one of the largest fintechs in the world. Um, in the U.S., we're, we're the number one provider of core banking solutions to financial institutions. We're also the number one merchant acquirer uh, in the country. So we truly sit at the nexus of commerce. Um, the group I lead, FinTech and Growth, is really an enterprise organization that sits horizontally across the company. And it was created to help us take different types of products and services uh, and branch out to a, a, a broader addressable market than just chartered institutions or merchants. And that's where I had the privilege to, to meet with Daniel and uh, see if there's opportunities for us uh, to collaborate to develop Web3 solutions or help uh, bring Web3 a little bit more mainstream. Great. So welcome both. In this series of podcasts we've been doing, we've been taking a deep dive into open finance Today, we're talking about the potential for Web3 tech uh, to help make the promises of open finance a reality. There are a number of elements I know in this new world of decentralized finance, whether it's crypto or blockchain or NFTs. Let's start by talking about which elements are being embraced by financial service providers and, yeah, and I guess how they're adopting them. Great. Yeah. So uh, here at Consensus, again, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention one of our flagship products, uh, 
the MetaMask wallet. It's the most popular non-custodial wallet in the world. It allows you to interact with any of these uh, kind of Web3 experiences. You can buy, sell, and hold these different assets, but also much more unique experiences, right? It also acts as a form of single sign-on into these worlds, right? If you want to participate in a DeFi protocol, uh, if you have an NFT that like proves your identity to get you into some type of gated experience. And we're all quite proud of the progress MetaMask has made and continues to make. I hope everyone listening downloads MetaMask. It's free. Check it out. It's fun. Uh, But over the past few years, what we also see in the kind of custodial space, right? Not everyone wants to manage their own keys all the time or deal with that complexity is institutions thinking about how they can offer these experiences to their customers. And I think there's a spectrum between thinking about them as purely financial assets, which we've seen for some time now, right? Providing people avenues where they can buy, sell, and hold these assets to this kind of world we live in today, which is a more Web3 experience where, yes, you can participate in the financial aspect, but there's also non-financial properties of these assets too, right? And depending where an institution is, they may be in different spaces of enabling that for users. So, uh, for a number of years, there have been players that have, you know, obviously specialized in this. You think about the Coinbase's, the Gemini's, who have quite mature offerings in terms of, yes, buying, selling these uh, assets, holding them, but also uh, providing like wallet infrastructure for folks to be able to, you know, if they want to send uh, some USDC to create a remittance, if they want to participate in one of these DeFi pools or uh, do some type of lending or uh, maybe um, use an NFT held with that account to gain access to some type of gated experience, you see that uh, enabled at these institutions. Fintechs, uh, really many that were focused on, you think about a lot of fintechs replicate a, a traditional business in a, in a more uh, exciting or usable way. So you think about like the money service bureau business, right? We've seen the folks like the Venmos and cash apps around for a number of years or kind of the broker dealer experience. You know, we see the Robin Hoods, et cetera, right? These type of institutions, I think, have been in an interesting place where they're maybe just behind those uh, crypto native institutions in terms of rolling out these capabilities, both in the U.S., but then I I work a lot in Latin America where I think um, a lot of these institutions are maybe a few months or a year ahead where they're starting to offer kind of like the Coinbase or Gemini-like services already. And then, of course, we do have the traditional financial institutions increasingly starting to look at ways to enable uh, these experiences for their users. Many announcements over the past year from the likes of Fidelity, Bank of New York, um, Visa, MasterCard. And these can be, again, maybe a, a more traditional kind of uh, FI to FI financial service, like providing custody for other FIs, or they can be experiences directly for retail customers, institutional like funds. So there is a, a pretty uh, heterogeneous mix of activity happening across of institutions, but I kind of think of it that way from the more crypto native to the more traditional FIs, we do see the same path. It's just a question of depending on your size and you know, obviously uh, how you are interpreting regulatory guidance, where you're at and enabling those uh, capabilities for your customers. And Zach, we've had similar conversations at Fiserv as well, uh, but it's interesting. Uh, our perspective obviously comes from the fact that we are uh, rooted in centralized finance, right? So as we talk to financial institutions, uh, they're always trying to figure out ways to ensure that they continue to stay relevant for their existing customer base, whether that's retail or commercial. 
uh, they see opportunities in DeFi and blockchain and crypto as a way to create more efficient ecosystems to move data and value. Now, one of the things, as you probably know, um, over the last couple of months, we've been through an interesting sojourn with the regulators. Uh, and uh, that uh, doesn't look like it'll abate anytime soon. Uh, we've been in conversations with regulators because we are extensions of our banks uh, in most cases. And they talk to us about how we are facilitating and enabling those types of transactions and what are some of the guardrails that are in place. But I have to say that uh, the regulators are coming at it from a very open mind. Uh, financial institutions are looking at uh, use cases very specifically to ensure that they're prioritizing big bets. Uh, so that usually starts with some type of commercial transaction enablement before they jump into retail. Uh, when we look at the merchant side of the house, we've seen a number of announcements where merchants are open to accepting crypto or stablecoin at the point of sale for purchase. But that's still a little bit of a rarity. Uh, it is not really commonplace at this point. Uh, but again, merchants are trying to figure out what they can do with DeFi to, again, enable stickiness and relevance with their existing base. And we saw a great announcement recently where Starbucks and, and uh, announced an NFT Odyssey solution with Polygon. And we're excited to see where that goes. Obviously, Starbucks is a leader in the loyalty space, and they've done some great things with their program. We're privileged to support Starbucks uh, in a many, many of the areas of their business. And we're curious to see how this uh, Odyssey NFT launch goes and how we can potentially learn from that and maybe share that with other merchants as well. That's really interesting. And I, I wanted to drill down a little bit. I know in, in one of the concepts that comes up frequently when we talk about Web3 here at Tearsheet, um, I know we're in the early stages of maturity around, around it, but I'm interested in the potential. Like, what are your thoughts on what DeFi could bring in the, in the financial ecosystem? Yeah. Um, Maybe just so everyone's on the same page, uh, I'll make sure that everyone understands what DeFi is too, right? That's a good place to start. Oh, no, no, no. I, I, have a, I have a little anecdote that I think makes clear to uh, some of uh, the folks that are maybe more novice in it. And it is a really, I think, important part of consensus role is that uh, I often think, I mentioned before, we work directly with these protocols. So Uniswap is one of the, you know, it is the biggest decentralized exchange, right? They use our products like Infura. Uh, and at the same time, we work with like the likes of, you know, the large banks. And one thing I noticed when I used to work at Swift was this uh, gap between these communities sometimes, right, where people are doing really innovative and really cool stuff in DeFi, but they don't quite get the challenges of compliance or cybersecurity that a large institution would have. Alternatively, uh, I remember first talking about DeFi with folks in like 2017 with the arrival of Bancor. Most of my banker friends uh, never asked me about it or at least followed up on me telling them that DeFi was interesting, probably finally last year when that Economist article came out. So there's a gap between these worlds. And I think a consensus, we really try to bridge that gap. So maybe just anecdotally for the audience, a good example of like the potential of DeFi is uh, I'm a big saver. I like to invest, uh, but I don't really keep a lot in my checking account. I'll be honest. I just kind of pay with my credit card. I put a lot in my 401k or I buy some crypto or, you know, I have an annuity. Um, but I don't all, I'm not always very liquid. I don't know. I could sell something if I have to, uh, but it doesn't usually happen. But I got a credit card alert uh, a few years ago or last year, like December 23rd. And I had to buy my nephew's Christmas presents. And uh, it would take a little while to get me issued a new credit card. And my checking account was just kind of low. And I was able to participate in one of these decentralized lending protocols, such as, uh, you know, MakerDAO or Aave or Compound, uh, depositing a little bit of my ETH 
I collateralized a loan. I was immediately issued a DAI, which is a US dollar stablecoin. I sold the DAI instantly. I was able to go off, buy some cool gifts, have a great holidays with my nephews, got my next paycheck, bought some new ETH, re-collateralized my loan. And it all happened quite uh, automatically without a lot of friction or middlemen or uh, frankly, in the traditional financial ecosystem, I would have been very hard pressed to have uh, tapped that liquidity as easily and quickly as I did, right? So what we see a lot of in terms of institutional adoption is how can folks begin to provide services like that or use these type of protocols to provide that type of frictionless experience to their customers. So we see a lot of innovation happening right now with both like compliance tools so that you can analyze an entire, so in this lending pool example I gave, for example, right? I don't have a strict counterparty. My counterparty is the protocol, right? So if you're a lender or a lendee, whether it's like credit risk or cybersecurity or like wanted to check if someone's in an OFAC list, you can't just look at like your counterparty in the transaction. You have to look at the entire pool. And we have been developing tools for folks to do that. Additionally, we've been in a lot of talks with uh, creating KYC uh, liquidity or like the, the, those liquidity pools or these decentralized exchanges such that you can have that efficiency where, uh, again, there's this like, um, there's a, there's no individual counterparty risk in a trade, right? You have your, your, your counterparty is the entire protocol, which, you know, diversifies your risk a little, but how can we create ways where institutions feel fine knowing that all, you know, a million depositors have been KYC. So that's another thing that, you know, we've been working out with a number of uh, large FIs, regulators, et cetera. Yeah. yeah from a Fryster perspective, again, the adoption rate is going to be based on efficiency, I believe. Right. So today financial institutions, uh, send transactions down a number of different rails. And each rail has a different regulatory component, a different commercial component, and a different timeline in terms of when that uh, value is exchanged. So whether it's ACH, Fedwire, RTP, uh, SWIFT, uh, pay-by-bank channels that are now emerging, um, there is a need to create more efficient uh, back office and middle office systems for financial institutions. Um, so they can have a single protocol that they can send data and value and uh, understand that, hey, that will uh, take uh, the time that the customer needs to get their transaction completed. We're having lots of conversations with financial institutions that are looking to create those efficient back office systems for cross-border transactions and for domestic commercial transactions, because that's, that's where the biggest ROI is right now, Zach. Uh, but eventually we do see, um, you know, folks looking at DeFi and learning from DeFi. I think DeFi is going to play a critical element in uh, how this entire industry evolves, because it's almost like a R&D area, right, where there's a lot of experimentation. Things are going to work. Things are not going to work. We have things uh, just as recently with Tornado Cash. Uh, you know, where people are trying to decipher, you know, where does the OFAC line get drawn? Does it get drawn at a, at a protocol or does it get drawn at a, at a person? Um, so those are the types of conversations I think uh, DeFi is kind of bubbling up. And as those conversations happen, I think we'll see uh, the two worlds coming together uh, to drive better efficiency across the entire ecosystem. I appreciate that. I want to switch gears and talk about NFTs. Um, I know as a concept, it's, it's challenging for some people to wrap their heads around. And I think a lot of the early use cases have centered on art or on collectibles. I'm curious uh, to get 
your insight, you know, where you see NFTs evolving to and, and what other uses they may have. Yeah, I think uh, I'm a little bit privileged when it comes to NFTs and that I'm a, I'm, I'm a nerd and I've been into this blockchain stuff for a while. So when I was at Swift, I used to participate with Consensus and a number of other institutions in this. Uh, I think Microsoft was frequently hosting these in Times Square, I think called the Token Taxonomy Initiative which were efforts to standardize different types of tokens, right? So whether it's a securities token that has attributes that represent like a bond or a stock or derivative, or whether it's a utility token. And one thing we talked about a lot of the time was non-fungible tokens or NFTs, right? And I think over the past two years, year, there's been really exciting things that I, I'm, I'm very, uh, you know, again, excited to see, uh, whether it's the kind of traditional art world, whether it's you know, traditional folks in the kind of high value art world creating these works or newer folks that are now kind of part of the traditional art world, like the folks creating those fidenzas and such. There's also some speculative activity around, I think, some of these collections, right? So if you think about like crypto punks, where there's an element of kind of art, but there's also, you know, you do certainly want this asset to accrue value. But then thirdly, it also provides you a type of identity, right? So you can use it as your Twitter profile, etc. All these things are very exciting. But uh, I, uh, I, I guess I, I'm lucky again to have been thinking about NFTs before this boom, because really there's, there's frankly just a ton of other applications, right? So, uh, you may have seen, uh, there were some Batman NFTs issued last year, which I think were quite exciting at low cost, uh, and not, no one's buying them with the intention of, uh, maybe selling them for like a million dollars later. What they do give you is the right to participate in the ideation of future like Batman storylines. So I think it's really cool that these kids can hold these Batman NFTs. They can use them as profile pictures. They can trade them with each other, much like collectibles, you know, like trading cards in the past. But it also gives them this agency to determine, you know, future Batman storylines. I know if, you know, when I was younger, I would have loved to have had like some X-Men ones when I was in junior high or something like that. So there, there, there's a field of NFT experimentation like that. There, we've worked in a number of like gated experiences for lifestyle brands, sports, et cetera. So, you know, we've worked with some soccer teams where like an NFT that you can think about it as like uh, the equivalent of whether it's uh, backstage passes or the special box at the stadium um, where you have these gated experiences to consume this media or to maybe get time to chat with your favorite artist or athlete. Right. So that's another way that we see NFTs being used concretely. And then finally, I mean, really, there maybe this is boring to folks who are very excited about art and, uh, you know, uh, all the profile pic uh, NFTs have come, but you can also have pretty standard financial use cases implemented as well. So we've talked a lot before about like uh, in financial inclusion or, um, you know, a number of Governments have like subsidies for certain people in the case of like uh, insurance policies, right? Extreme weather events for like poor farmers, et cetera. Well, you could have an insurance policy implemented as an NFT, right? And then there's an Oracle that will feed you in if an extreme weather event happens. When that happens, you simply either take the NFT or you burn it and then you pay them instantaneously with a stable coin. So you can imagine for someone who doesn't necessarily have a lot of assets or time, uh, who is working in maybe uh, like a uh, like a farming collective. We see this in certain countries. Uh, you know, it's certainly very important that they get that liquidity, right? They don't have a lot of savings or resources to live by. And it's great that they could be paid instantaneously instead of having to present a lot of paperwork for this insurance policy that they have the total right to be paid for, right? We're just taking out this, this friction of uh, getting this insurance payment that they deserve, right? So uh, really, I think the ubiquity of NFT use cases is uh, really exciting and, and, and when you zoom out, 
bigger than I think a lot of people have been thinking about over the past like 24 months. Yeah, no, I totally agree with, you know, all of the use cases that Daniel highlighted. I think what we're seeing in terms of practical applications coming out in the market, we talked a little bit about what Starbucks is doing, but we really do see it as loyalty 2.0, right? The ability to provide the enhanced experience through that identity function that Daniel talked about uh, at a number of different venues. We have a um, and at, uh, part of our enterprise is called Clover Sport, where we work with lots of stadiums across the country. One of the coolest things I've heard about potential use of NFT is to provide it as a to a season ticket holder, where they not only get to use the NFT to get into their into the stadium, get to the seat, and get access to special events, but they also through that NFT can unlock all the experiences that that stadium provided to a person sitting in that seat for the last 50 years, right? So if it was a hockey stadium, every important hockey goal from the vantage point of that seat can be unlocked by that NFT. Uh, so I thought that was pretty cool. And, uh, you know, again, we're, we're looking forward to see what Starbucks is going to do. We think others are going to jump in. We've had a lot of merchants inquire about, uh, you know, leveraging NFT as loyalty 2.0 and providing, especially clubs like Sam's Club or Costco. You could see how, you know, they want to create more curated experiences for different segments of their of their customer base and how NFTs can fulfill that service. Yeah, I definitely love that experience loyalty piece. It, it, it gets me excited, at least when I think about the capabilities there, the possibilities. One of the things that I think that's so interesting about the Web3 space is that sort of, you know, being defined as, as, as we sit here. Um, I know regulations are still in the air and, and we're seeing a move from proof of work to proof of stake consensus uh, with the recent merge for Ethereum. What, what do you guys make of it? And, and how are you operating in this somewhat undefined space for, for an industry that really requires definition? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, we definitely have been on a, a journey with the regulators. And it's great to see, I have to say that every interaction I've had so far, Zach, with the regulators, they've really come with an open mind looking to learn as much as dictate, you know, in terms of policy. Um, there's still a lot to kind of unravel here because there's so much potential. Daniel just talked about, you know, all of the things that he's seen and experiencing around the world with just NFTs. Um, I really do believe that everybody's bought in that there is an efficient protocol here that can be leveraged uh, to make lives better, to ensure that there's more uh, inclusive systems that are developed for everybody, uh, that there's an opportunity uh, to just bring the world closer together from, a, from an economic standpoint. So the regulators still have a lot of work to do. I think politics will play a role in that, unfortunately or fortunately, right? Uh, so we'll see how uh, you know, what happens with the midterms and as we get into uh, the next election cycle. Uh, but I'm, I am, you know, uh, confident that we'll get this right, because I believe for us as a country to continue to be a leader from an innovative standpoint, that we have to kind of address this problem head on or, or take advantage of uh, the opportunity that blockchain Web3 uh, provides us. Yeah, I mean, uh Vis-a-vis -vis specific regulations, I will say as a senior strategic sales uh, manager, I would defer to our excellent government affairs and policy team at Consensus who uh, really put a lot of thought into this, right, about like what 
type of activity is true financial activity and what type of activity like these collectibles, right? How can you enable folks to participate in uh, art or collectibles in a way that is parallel to the world that exists today, which is different than the financial services sector, and then also have appropriate activity for like the FI sector with if you're issuing a security token, it should probably have the attributes and all of the activities that you would do when issuing a security. Uh, and I would totally defer to them who can explain all those things much better than me. Where I get quite excited, though, is in working with customers, we do want to give them the way to set policy, carry it out operationally, and then document it across any type of risk that they could have. And that could be, you know, whether mandated by the regulators or as just industry standards or as a way of proving your value to your counterparties or customers. Uh, we're really excited to develop, I mentioned before, compliance tools that are appropriate to like DeFi, right? So if you're analyzing whether you want to make a deposit into a pool with 4 million depositors, we'll help you set a policy that'll maybe identify not just like addresses that are in the OFAC list, but addresses that have done things that could get them in the OFAC list, right? Like uh, terrorist financing, illicit content, et cetera, things that are open to interpretation. We've mentioned the mixers, mixer users before, gambling services, things like that. Uh, you can set a policy such that across all like 4 million of these deposits, you can identify which addresses have uh, really participate in activities that would either foreclose business or much in the traditional world, check if it's a false positive, right? So, you know, there's always sanctions hits when it just turns out that the person is not the person in the OFAC list. They're an accountant from uh, Flatbush, Brooklyn, right? Uh, we want to provide tools to do very similar activities uh, in uh, Web3 and DeFi, not just in terms of financial crime compliance, but also like anti-fraud and security. We're very dedicated to providing audits of smart contracts to ensure that they behave the way they do. We have a very uh, mature audit business where we deliver an audit for you, but we also have a tool called fuzzing that basically lets you like brute force attack any of your smart contracts as you uh, develop them, as you implement them, as you design them to find potential vulnerabilities there. And then of course, uh, we're always excited to work with folks on how they can uh, develop uh, custody solutions, right? And we've been, uh, our MetaMask institutional offering is integrated with uh, probably seven or eight custodians now. And we've worked with a lot of large institutions on things like key management. So it, it's always top of mind for us how we can, uh, again, enable the adoption of these both, not just in like non-custodial wallets, but at an institutional level. And that takes a number of these tools, whether it's financial crime compliance, custody, fraud monitoring, smart contract, auditing, et cetera. Yeah. And I know you're the sales guy, but that was pretty good. And uh, and, and I think, and I think and even if you don't buy it from us, I would say those are general principles, right? Yeah. So consensus is happy to help you, but I would say compliance, custody, anti-fraud are our principles as well, not just sales. No, no, and, and that's why yeah. Zach, I think you you've heard just from Daniel's yeah. response that why we're you know looking forward to collaborating with consensus, right? Because it's truly about building bridges. You know, we don't necessarily think it's an either or question with with DeFi. I think there's an opportunity for both sides to learn and, and kind of uh, build the foundations of, of what finance could look like in the future. I think what's so interesting for me is is hearing both of your perspectives and, you know, having had these conversations a couple of years ago, it feels like we're so much like closer to this actually becoming a reality now. Um, Sunil, Daniel, thank you very much for joining us on the Tearsheet podcast today. Thanks, Zach. Excellent. Anytime uh, you, you would want me or anyone from Consensus back would be honored to do it. It's a real pleasure to be with y'all.